Welcome to the International Door Association's DoorCast. The ITA DoorCast will provide news and notes from the building and remodeling industry and tips and tidbits to help you improve your business. Now, here's your DoorCast host, IDA Executive Director, Mike Fisher. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the IDA DoorCast. This is Mike Fisher, IDA's Executive Director, coming to you live from the Winding Bar Cafe. Our guest today is Chad Moutre, the Chief Economist for the National Association of Manufacturers based in the Washington, D.C. area. Chad is here today to share the National Association of Manufacturers' perspective and how the U.S. manufacturing economy got to this point in time and help IDA members navigate the storm. What we're dealing with right now is a collision of natural disasters, a global pandemic, policy issues, and other market forces that have caused disruptions, including price volatility, production issues, labor and material shortages and delays, and a lot of other negative impacts. So we're happy to have Chad here today to help us get a better understanding of what we've been going through and what's on the horizon. So Chad, let me thank you again for coming to join us today on the IDA DoorCast. Well, thank you for inviting me, Mike. This is this will be an exciting conversation, hopefully. I'm looking forward to it. Our members are really interested in this topic. But before we dive into the meat of our discussion, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background individually and how you got to the National Association of Manufacturers? Sure. I've been uh, the chief economist at the National Association of Manufacturers for a little over 10 years now. Um, Prior to that, I was chief economist at the U.S. Small Business Administration's Office of Advocacy for eight years. Uh, And prior to that, I was an academic. I I was the dean of the School of Business at Robert Morris College in Chicago, which is now part of Roosevelt University. So I was a young dean, uh, a big fish in a small pond, have a PhD uh, in economics from Southern Illinois University and a master's degree from Eastern Illinois University. So I'm originally from Central Illinois. You obviously have the right credentials for the job you're filling now. We're going to dig into some of that expertise and tap into it. And so I'm, again, welcome and thanks for coming. Let me tell you a little bit about IDA and and our members who are primarily garage door dealers. These are installing contractors who service new construction in the residential and non-residential market. They also do a lot of remodeling work. So they're dealing with companies, they're dealing with national companies, and they're also dealing with Mr. and Mrs. Smith as homeowners. And our members are used to decades of very stable market conditions. Every December, they get a letter from their supplier saying, we're going to increase prices next year. They were used to navigating that very predictable scenario where every year they had to look at their pricing structure. That's not happening this year. And in fact, what we're dealing with now is the exact opposite, this unpredictability. We're dealing with volatile prices. We're dealing with back orders. We're dealing with delays. And all of this obviously runs down the market chain. Our members are upset about it. They're not used to it. It's change and it's change within the change. And I've been calling it the new abnormal, frankly. So can you tell me what exactly happened? How did we get to this point? I will. First, I'll tell you that I just bought a garage door. Thankfully, uh, the the garage door guy that I called happened to have a garage door in stock. Otherwise, it would have taken several weeks, right? Because of the supply chain shortages that everyone is experiencing now. So I I can happily say I have a great garage door now. So hopefully one of your members uh, installed that for me. Um, I mean, the the short answer here is this is an unprecedented times, right? Just if you just really look over the last year and a half or more, 
COVID-19, you know, before that, obviously the trade war, right? And, and the trade conversation that uh, a lot of our members were really grappling with. And you were starting to get a sense that things were starting to stabilize until this year when all the supply chain struggles really started hitting, right? So uh, if you go back to like January, February, you started to get an inkling of the chip shortage, right? That was affecting not just motor vehicles, but really across the board, across the spectrum for a lot of electronic components. You had bad weather in February that affected a lot of our member companies, especially in the chemicals and computers and petrol space. Um, and, and, you know, the, those supply chain shortages have not gone away, right? They continue to be pretty exacerbated. I guess to go back even further than that, I was just in California recently and I saw the boats, the, the, the shipping con containers out on, on Long Beach, right? You, still, you also have a backlog of orders, right? Um, uh, our members also were complaining a lot about the challenges of finding workers and logistics challenges with trucking, right? So there's just a number of factors at, at play here. We do a survey, the, the NAM Manufacturers Outlook survey. Actually, we're getting ready to go in the field with it again for the third quarter. But the second quarter survey, the number one issue was rising prices, right? Uh, that's the second straight quarter in a row where that's been the top issue. First time in my 10-year history that was the number one issue. But it was followed very closely by uh, workforce, you know, the challenge of finding workforce, supply chain challenges, transportation and logistics. Again, where are you going to get truck drivers? Uh, and of course, the perennial healthcare costs, right? Um, so those are those are the top five issues, right? But almost all of them are related to just kind of these unprecedented, unique times that we live in right now, where you know you're seeing price increases that we really haven't seen in in, in a number of decades, right? Uh, and so that that certainly is a, is a challenge for manufacturers, but really for consumers as well. Chad, one of the materials that is used most in garage door assemblies is steel. The door sections, the track systems, a lot of the hardware components are made out of stamped coil stock steel. And that seems to be the root issue on the pricing side for our industry. And what we are hearing from our members is that their suppliers are sending them price change letters on a regular basis that is based on that supply of coil stock steel. Is there anything unique about the steel market that's causing that kind of volatility where they could be getting a price increase letter literally once a week over a period of time? Well, we've definitely been hearing the same thing with regard to steel. Obviously, a lot of our members also use a lot of steel. In fact, I have one member uh, that was, I think, on a weekly basis sending me emails saying this is what the prices that they're quoting me. I think to a certain extent, you're also seeing, we were seeing commodity prices go up pretty largely across the board, not just for steel, but for lumber and a lot of other issues. Uh, earlier this year, especially as the global economy started improving, right? Uh, I like to say that commodity prices flow really strongly with China. And so as China was starting to improve and starting to pick up overall activity, you were seeing commodity prices rise across the board. There are some unique aspects to many of these other elements as well. So certainly lumber and steel, because there are some trade issues involved, right, as well. So I, I do think that you've certainly seen a number of these things that have really impacted it. Uh, I know the home builders, right, which uh, which uh, we follow their numbers pretty closely. Builders continue to complain, not just about, uh, you know, the lack of inventory, right, but they also complain pretty steadily about rising prices, right, for, for the inputs, much as you are, uh, as well as the lack of workers, right? And so, you know, all of these things are, are starting to put a little bit of a damper, I think, on, even on the housing market that was really growing gang like gangbusters a few months ago now has softened a little bit largely, uh, at least in my view, on affordability issues, right? So this, this is starting to actually pinch a little bit. Well, as someone who's getting ready to sell a house, that's not always bad news. 
for me personally, that will actually be a bonus because the factors that are affecting construction are actually affecting in a positive way the value of existing real estate. This is definitely a seller's market, right? Uh, Not just here in the DC area, but around the country, it's a seller's market. There's not enough inventory. And so it's pushing up to record prices, the medium home price, right? So that's the good news for sellers. Uh, for for buyers, that's a challenge, and that's I think why you're starting to see a little bit of softening on the on some of the existing home sales is that it's pushing the price above where some folks are willing to pay. But uh, good news again for you uh, as a seller. There's a well-known joke about the best lies, and one of those lies is, "Hi, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help." And you may have heard that one. <laughs> so the, my question about that punchline is. What about the COVID policy that was enacted at state and primarily federal levels related to stimulus spending and to unemployment assistance, those kinds of policy items? What role in in improving or in negatively impacting our recovery from the COVID shutdown did the federal policy specifically have on that front? Did it help? Did it exacerbate the problem? What's your perspective on that? I'm going to give you a nuanced answer here. So I'll give you the good news first, and then I'll give you a little bit more of challenging. Uh, the good news is the government, both fiscal policy and monetary policy, acted very aggressively very early on with stimulus payments that went out the door, with interest rates that are essentially zero right now. The Fed's balance sheet has, has basically doubled or since the, this pandemic began. And so you saw that happen fairly early on. I think by, by June of, of last year, you already were seeing retail spending almost at pandemic level, pre-pandemic levels, right? So you instantly you had some, this infusion of money in the system that helped us, at least in the United States, recover much faster than a lot of other countries, a lot of other markets. So that was, that's the positive news. And you certainly see when you're looking at retail sales, personal income and spending, you've seen whenever there's been a stimulus payment, you've seen the impacts of that pretty readily in, in the system. Now, the challenge is that also when those stimulus payments go away, you also see the weaning effect of that, right? And you've seen some, some weakness there from it. But the good news is lots of money's gone out the door. Depending on your political persuasion, perhaps too much money, right? As you get into the trillion, everything, it has a tr- trillion in front of it now, right? But definitely lots of money has gone out the door and that has helped in many ways us recover, right? We're actually back already at pre-pandemic levels of GDP already, right? So that's that's a good thing. The bad thing is that, that number one, this, this recovery has been fairly uneven, right? You, there's definitely a lot to be said about the K-shaped recovery, right? If, if for those of us who never lost our job, right? Or we continued getting a steady stream of income, asset values, as we just said, are at all-time highs, right? Or close to it. Uh, and so we've done pretty well for ourselves. Um, for those who lost their job, uh, uh, the story is much different, right? So there's definitely something to be said about the K-shaped recovery. And much of the stimulus payments that we've seen more recently, certainly this year, have really focused a lot more on uh, the lower end of the spectrum. But therein lies the challenge that I think that, that you were getting to earlier, uh, Mike, and that is that uh, the unemployment insurance, certainly something that we hear from a lot of our member companies, those extra benefits that a lot of states were putting out there, $300 a week, uh, were certainly an impediment, at least in in our members' view, uh, to getting uh, workers, right? Uh, Everyone is is struggling to find talent now. The labor market has clearly shrunk, right? Uh, And and, uh, unemployment insurance benefits are are certainly part of that. Um, And I think the other thing that will hopefully help that labor market issue is as schools start getting back, you know, one of the issues that I think at least has held back the labor market in addition to unemployment insurance has been flexibility, childcare, 
school, right? School is virtual. Uh, and so as, as we hopefully get back to some semblance of normalcy, we'll see hopefully that labor market pick up a little bit. And so I guess the answer to your direct question was uh, government has has been helpful, but it's, it's also it has, has probably held back the labor market, so certainly as it relates to the unemployment insurance issue. And that is one of the difficulties with policies like this, where you try to do blanket policy. It's very difficult with governmental regulation to avoid picking winners and losers. Unfortunately, that happened. If I were a single mother with children trying to navigate childcare issues, and I had to make a decision between hiring a one-on-one care person at a very high expense or taking advantage of that supplemental unemployment insurance, that's a no-brainer for me. I'm going to stay home with my kids. I think we all get that. Unfortunately, that ripple effect from that good intention is, has definitely impacted the labor for our members. Door dealers can't find technicians. They can't even find office help in some cases where they're looking to, to build their administrative teams. And we know that our supplier members, the manufacturers, who are also part of the National Association of Manufacturers, have the same issue with shop floor labor, as well as some other parts of their operations, including things like even trucking and logistics. So the big ripple effect that, that starts with some basic benefits. I, I would tend to agree with you. I think overall, the governmental policy that, that came out of Washington on this issue has been primarily helpful. I mean, uh, we did not go into a huge recession and we the recovery was quick and swift. I think we have right now across all sectors is we have a, uh, a pent up demand that is there. That is good news because as you look to the future, you can say, well, we, we know we've got orders. Yeah. We just have to figure out a way to fill those orders. And that's that's the good news about big backlogs, right? Yeah. The problem and is how long is that going to maintain? Do you have any thoughts about the status of your members and their sales backlogs? Well, the, the, the backlogs are at record highs right now. I think the challenge that they have, much like you just said, is how are you going to fill it, right? There's not enough talent. Uh, everyone tells me that uh, they're, they're struggling to find workers. Uh, for the first time, really, since the pandemic began, there are more job openings out there than people who are looking for work, right? And so, you know, we're back to a, the tight labor market that we had pre-pandemic, right? Um, the result of that is wages are going up, right? Uh, they have to go up to be able to compete, not just in manufacturing, but across the board, especially in services. Go to any restaurant, you're going to see they're begging for talent right now. But wages are up at least four and a half percent over the last 12 months in manufacturing. That's, that's a phenomenal number, right? Uh, but it also means that you're pinching the, you know, you're pinching uh, your overall bottom line. And, and uh, I think the other, the other big challenge there is even with higher wages, there's still, there's still uh, more than 800,000 job openings out there that are unfilled right now in manufacturing. So that's a pretty, it's also a rec- almost a record high. I think that that's true across all sectors of our economy. I can't walk into a restaurant or any retail business where I live without seeing a help wanted sign. Yeah. My personal feeling is anybody that wants to work today is working. One of the things that we've heard about in our industry is the foam plastic issue. Many of today's garage doors include foam plastic insulation. These are insulated doors. Insulation is used to control temperature, also reduces sound. It's a big part of today's door. And we've heard that the snowstorm in Texas that disrupted the petroleum industry has caused that issue. I think our members expected that to be a short-term impact but it still continues to this day, the ripple effect of that. How has that played out? Do you have any insight into that? Yeah, we continue to hear that as well. I mean, I, I think they were down to this 30% capacity for a while there in, in Texas, it, it kind of the worst of it. 
and it's taking a while to work through those backlogs. I don't, I don't have exact numbers. I think it's unfortunately getting caught up in the larger supply chain issues that are out there that were, you know, anytime you order anything at this point, it's going to take you weeks or, or sometimes months to get it. So I think part of that is kind of building into that larger narrative of supply chain disruptions, the lack of workforce that we talked about in the earlier segment. Uh, and it's going to take a while. I mean, I, hopefully by the time we get to the end of this year, we'll, we will have worked our way through much of the supply chain challenges that we're in right now. But as we've heard from the chip sector, right, uh, it could go into 2022 before we can fully get uh, back to normally there. And I suspect some other sectors are similar. Well, the chip manufacturing issue is the reason that I'm not buying a new truck right now. So it's the automotive industry that's having to deal with that as well. Another thing that we've heard about is the blockage of the Suez Canal. And the question I have for you, is that a red herring or was that a real impact on broader supply chain issues as well? Well, I think this really speaks to the importance of infrastructure, right? Uh, but it also speaks to the importance of the ports, just in, in, in a world where we are so globally integrated. Yes, the Suez Canal issue was, was, a, was a, you know, a few days it blocked the canal, but it shows you just how important those canals are, right? It's, I would say the same thing if the Panama Canal were blocked, right? Um, We've seen certainly the impacts when we've had port closures or port issues, right? We certainly, in all of our member companies earlier this year, were complaining about backlogs at the ports, right? That there was, in that case, there wasn't enough talent, right? There wasn't enough workers, right? And that was certainly leading to huge backlogs. And the result, result of that was some companies, in, because they had that just-in-time process and needed those, those, those raw materials on time, had to fly it in. Right, uh, and that increased the cost of transportation. Right, and so I think uh, what that shows us is just how important global trade is, how important these the overall infrastructure is, and you know it's a large part of why we, as a country, just made a huge investment in infrastructure. Right, because we need to have uh, as much as we can. We've been under investing in infrastructure for for decades, uh, and this is hopefully a, a way for us to finally move forward on that topic. Thanks, Chad. You just mentioned the phrase that I was going to ask you about, just in time. That is an inventory practice. It's, it's really become a core methodology for everyone in the supply chain from supply, manufacturing, distribution, and retail to manage their inventory by reducing the cost of that inventory in terms of how many dollars they're tying up on their balance sheet in goods or in materials or in parts and pieces. So it sounds like we've gotten to a point where there's not any margin of error in our supply chain as a, as a as a practice, should we continue just in time or should we build a little more margin for error in the future? Well, you know, just in time has been a buzzword really since the 80s, right? If you go back and look at the, look at, uh, you know, the Japanese and, and their overall models uh, for manufacturing back, back when we were really competing against them. Um, you know, the, the reality is every company that I talk to says that they're reevaluating their supply chain. And I think that many of them are already doing so because of the trade war and a lot of other things that were happening prior to the pandemic. But the pandemic has just really put that, accelerated that conversation. Companies, I think for the most part, what they're looking at now, I think just in time is still going to be there, but it's going to be tweaked, right? I think that you are, like you're right, they're going to be probably holding a little bit more inventory to make sure that they can continue to do that. I've also heard companies that depending on the company, they're either doubling down on a supplier saying that one supplier is so important. I got to make sure I protect that, that stream of product or inputs coming to me. And they're doubling down on it and making sure that that continues to be a consistent source. 
or they're duplicate, making sure there's duplicative efforts, right? Making sure that maybe there's more than one supplier or more than one location that they can buy from. Um, but I, I do think supply chain management is something that, that is definitely going to be continued to, to be looked at very strongly. I think moving out of this pandemic, again, something that was already happening, but it's doubling down uh, largely because of the challenges that we've seen. Well, this might be good news for your members. What I'm hearing from the, the IDA dealer members is that they are reassessing their inventory levels as well. So what I would expect to happen is your members who are also, by the way, members of IDA, our, our manufacturing, our supplier members who actually produce garage doors, garage door openers, overhead doors, rolling steel doors, all of those products that are manufactured are likely to be stocked in greater levels next year. Mm -hmm. I think our dealer members are going to increase their inventories in certain parts of their of their product lines just to hedge their bets against future issues and also to make sure they can continue to improve their service. I think many of them would do it today if there was availability of surplus inventory. Today, everything they buy is going out the door for the most part. Yeah. So we're turning over the inventory. That's, again, good news. Everyone's inventory turn is good. The bad news is they's, they're losing sales and they're losing opportunity to grow because of that. And that goes back to that pent up demand. So yeah. I, I do think you'll see that. So hopefully that will result in some sustainability in the backlog for your members uh, as we go forward. It's, yeah. just, it's got to run uphill, I would hope. Yeah, hopefully it provides a nice uh, you know, tailwind for the economy moving into 2022, right? As we start working our way through that backlog. I like that phrase, tailwind. I may quote you on that <laughs> in an upcoming article. That's good. Thank you. As you mentioned, looking ahead, what, what's happening, and maybe that tailwind is part of it. What does the National Association of Manufacturers, and really when I ask that question, I guess I'm talking to the National Association of Manufacturers because it's your job to provide this information in your role. So what do you see in the months ahead? I'll ask you this in two parts. So in the upcoming months, as we get through the end of this year, what do you see on the horizon? And then the next part will be, what do you see in subsequent years in terms of these, these impacts and the overall economy? Well, first I'll say um, uh, that I'm up, upbeat about the overall outlook, right? I do think, you know, we're gonna grow around 6% in terms of GDP this year. Um, similar numbers for manufacturing production. Uh, again, as we're working our way back and rebounding from what was really a devastating 2020. Uh, so those, those are the good news. And I think that you're seeing that, that rebound both in the US and globally, right? Um, and, and, and that's certainly something that's facilitated by fiscal and monetary policy. But there's two downside risks here, just not to be negative, but there are two downside risks to the forecast, which I think are worth noting. Uh, number one is inflation, right? Um, uh, I do think the Fed is very aware, perhaps more than that they say, that price pre pricing pressures are pretty significant. Um, they like to use the word transitory, uh, but, but the, real the reality is prices aren't going to go down once they've come back up, right? And so we're probably going to be stuck here. They might slow, the growth might slow down to something above 2% at some point uh, on a year-over-year -year basis. But, but prices have clearly gone up in the last, in the last few months here in, in ways that we really haven't seen in, in a number of decades. So inflation is a challenge, and I think the challenge for the Fed is how, how do, you, do you normalize rates in a way that um, you can achieve some price stability without sending the economy downward, right? And so that's, that's going to be the real challenge for the Fed. My view is that they're going to start stop uh, or start to taper uh, the, the asset purchases. They're purchasing about $120 billion in assets every month. Uh, and then as you move into 2022, they're going to start raising rates slowly, but start raising rates. That's not where the Fed is, is communicating right now, but that, that's my view. To continue on with your other question, 
Obviously, we just got a major infrastructure pass, and uh, there's going to be a large conversation about the size of the budget, right? The three and a half trillion dollar budget. The NAM is going to be very much involved in that conversation. We do not want taxes to go up, right? So we'll be pushing back pretty strongly uh, against tax increases. We'll be pushing back in a number of other areas as well. Uh, we've wholeheartedly endorsed the infrastructure package for, for the reasons that I mentioned earlier. I think it's going to provide a huge economic boost to the economy. Uh, but the rest of that budget uh, conversation uh, is one where we're really apprehensive about the, the negative impacts that would come from tax increases. And so uh, look for lots of activity. Hopefully your members as well, the manufacturing members and, and other members are uh, active in the conversation with their congressmen and senators uh, as it relates to what the impact of the higher taxes might be on their, on their, on their businesses, right? Because I know that our members love tax reform, love the fact that we're competitive with the rest of the world again, and to see that kind of pull back a little bit is something they don't want to see. Thanks, Chad, for that insight into the future. I want to ask you a question that you may not be able to answer, but do you have any thoughts on how IDA members, both the manufacturers and the dealers, other than the policy support that you mentioned, any other strategies that you can recommend to help make it through this the next period of time, months and years? I think the best advice I could give is we will be out of this horrible time <laughs> at some point, right? What do you want your business to look like when the pandemic ends, when we're back to whatever that new normal looks like, right? Uh, and I think for, for our manufacturing members, they've really been putting that to heart, right? You've just seen them continue to invest in R&D, to continue to invest in te new technologies that are going to help grow their business so that when they come out on the other side of this, they're in a competitive place, right? Um, and so that's really the question I would, I would hopefully encourage everyone to do is, is when you get into 2022 and 2023, what do you want your business to look like? How is it different than it might be today? And what investments can you make to get you there, right? Um, because I think smart companies, the companies that survive are the ones that are always looking ahead and saying, okay, what innovation can I bring to my business? What do I want my business to be two, three, four years down the line? And how can I get to that point? And so that's the advice I would give. I would give that advice to anybody, actually, not just a business. I often say that to people who I'm mentoring uh, about their careers. Uh, where, you know, where do you want to be in a few years and, and how, do you, how, how can you get there? Thanks, Chad. You mentioned taxation and tax policy. I'm going to throw you a couple of quick topics. I'm going to ask for your insight into what policy recommendations may be coming from the National Association of Manufacturers on these issues. I know you're primarily on the economist side, but what you develop does drive, hopefully, their, their policy. Yeah. So the first one, workforce development, as it impacts labor, what would NAM say about that? Well, we need to continue to uh, encourage more workforce development. Certainly the, the Manufacturing Institute, which is part uh, affiliated with the NAM, has really been pushing this issue for quite some time with a number of programs related to women, minorities, vets, school-aged children, et cetera, just to try to change perceptions. And so, you know, what I often tell manufacturers is if you, you, if you know what that skill is going to be that you're going to, that's going to be in demand over the next two or three years, work with the educational leaders in your community, right? Make sure they're offering those skills so that you can be proactively making sure that you have that talent pool that you're going to need uh, down the line. Uh, and work with your state and local government officials, right? There's often, I think the, the most successful businesses are the ones, and as it relates to workforce development, are the ones that are, can target what workers they're going to need down the line and make sure that those skills are there and, and that their government leaders and educators are aware of that. That was a long answer, but uh, nonetheless. 
Well, I'll give you a short follow-up then. How does immigration policy impact that? Well, we need to continue to embrace immigration, right? And we've long endorsed a comprehensive immigration strategy at the, at the NAM. Well, we key voted it for many years and we still continue to, 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 to do so. I think we have to recognize that, that uh, you know, we need talent, right? Uh, and, and that often means that we need to have high-skilled talent coming from abroad, right? Uh, as well as just, you know, most manufacturers need need workers, right? Uh, and so I think we need to have a comprehensive immigration strategy and one that certainly uh, is, is all inclusive and embrace of, of, of other, uh, you know, of more people coming in. What about import restrictions and protections? You know, that's, you know, that obviously gives a sticky wicket sometimes, right? Um, uh, depending on, on what you're, you're referring to. Uh, but I think, you know, the NAM has long been embraced free trade, fair trade, right? Uh, and so I think what we continue to look at those issues kind of on a case-by-case basis and make sure that those protections are there that need to be there. And, and those that aren't, we can be, it's equally applied across, across uh, both foreign and, and domestic companies. What about COVID-19 policy? And that really goes to workplace issues in terms of vaccination requirements, those kind of risk management strategies. Does NAM have any policy direction on those issues? Well, the NAM has has uh, required uh, vaccination as a, as a condition for employment. So we've got a lot, a lot of press over that. We've been out there pretty aggressively pushing masks and, and you know, social distancing and being smart about this, this virus from the very beginning, right? And I think that that is something that has gotten a lot of attention, I think, nationally, our, our embrace of that, that issue. But at the same time, we also were out pushing pretty aggressively early on to make sure that manufacturing was deemed essential, right? So that as you were seeing some closures and, and, and restrictions placed early on, that the government leaders recognized manufacturing was an important part of that of the supply chain and that we really needed to make sure that those those folks stayed operational as much as we could and so there is there is some nuance there uh, we need to be smart but we also need to recognize that manufacturing has an important role to play in combating this virus and making sure that the supply chains are up and running yeah thank you you mentioned essential services and just a quick history on how we got to where we are as an association a year ago plus we went to Salt Lake City for our expo, it's our large event, which is a trade show, educational conference, and many other things rolled into one. When we went to Salt Lake City for that event, which by the way, was the last conference held in Salt Lake City before the shutdown, our number one worry was, will there be enough hand sanitizer on the show floor? That was that was our big fear. When we came back, we came back to the, the shutdown of the industry, the entire economy, essentially, and job one for us was the same thing. It was getting the essential services declaration to include our members' products and services. And it, it took some aha moments, I think, for some regulators to understand that it's really important that if you're sending a fire department or an ambulance or a police car out to handle an issue, that they can open the door and get actually get out of the building. So it took very little convincing, actually, to, to make those regulators understand that part of it. But it was a bigger challenge to get them to understand the manufacturing part of that. It's not just about the service and the installation side of it. You actually have to have something to service and something to install. So we were part of that voice. And, and I think we signed on some of the, some of the same efforts with NAM on, the, on that front. That's great. So on the effort of collaboration, what can IDA as an organization do on the advocacy with the National Association of Manufacturers? What role can our association and our members play to help drive the policy and the advocacy efforts that the National Association of Manufacturers is, is driving. So, you know, the NEM has 14,000 members, right? So that's a, that's a pretty large number. 
But we really widen our voice when we bring in other associations that we are all kind of singing from the same hymnal. And so we can actually partner with, we have in every state, we have a state association that works with us, right? So that we can help broaden the reach uh, of, of our message that way. But we also have around 250 members can more vertical associations called the Council of Manufacturing Associations, right? So that's another, another window really into, into how we can continue to push this message. I mean, the reality, the reality is that uh, me going up and speaking to the Hill or someone, uh, a, a government leader is not as important as actually having a member, a manufacturer or a business leader go up and talk to the Hill, right? That's a lot more persuasive when someone in their district comes up and talks to them about how this bill is going to impact them than it is for me as an economist, right, or, or an association leader. And so uh, what I would encourage uh, IDA to do is to continue to stay involved, right, work through IDA, but also other associations as well, and, and make sure that we, uh, you have your voice known as much as you can with your, with your political leaders and, and others of influence. Good advice, Chad. I'll be back in touch with you about the council. As we get ready to close our discussion for today, do you have any other advice for IDA members? And that includes the supplier manufacturing group, as well as the dealers or any other listeners? Well, I'm going to put my economist hat on here and, and be optimistic again, because I do tend to be a glass half full guy, right? Um, we're going to see some pretty phenomenal growth this year. We're going to hopefully see some great growth next year. We're coming out of this, right? Um, if, if we can get past the, the Delta variant, right, and, and get some 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 semblance of normalcy at some point, better days are ahead, right? And so I, I do hope that that companies are thinking about what does recovery look like to them. Hopefully, they're taking advantage of the fact that the economy is booming right now, right? And if we can get past some of the challenges with workforce and, and supply chain and and higher prices and all the other stuff, hopefully, we'll be able to appreciate that more. Chad, I can't thank you enough for taking time today to join us for the IDA DoorCast. Anytime. I'll do this anytime you want. So just feel free to invite me back. I'll keep that in mind. And I want to thank you again and note that we will be looking to collaborate in the future with the National Association of Manufacturers. This is Mike Fisher, Executive Director, signing off from the Winding Bar Cafe. Thank you for joining us today. To our listeners, thanks so much for hanging out with us today. We hope you enjoyed today's IDA DoorCast, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the IDA DoorCast. Be sure to catch our next episode. For more information about IDA, visit doors.org. See you next time.